the narratives that I had embraced in my life just weren't working anymore. Hi, I'm Josh Chambers. And I'm Leif Parton. And welcome to How Humans Change. This week, we spoke with John Booker. He is a master storyteller. He's written many books in story and VR. He's a world-traveling speaker and is currently finishing up a PhD in mythology. I love talking with John because he understands story so well. And so to hear someone that understands story break down their own story was just so fascinating and such a treat. We talked about shame. We talked about taking control of your life. We talked about building a career around sort of the idea of an ecosystem of, of story. And of course, we talked about mythology and rituals. And just a bonus I know that didn't make it in the podcast, John was the first person to introduce me to the magic that is the famous restaurant, Chili's. It's not that it's good, it's that it's good. You know what I mean? Anyway, if you guys like the podcast, please subscribe, rate us, share us with your friend. Um, but without further ado, here is John Booker. John, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to be here. I've been craving real conversation. I live in Los Angeles, a world that um, thrives on the absence of real conversation. So it's nice to step away from uh, the mundane realities around conversations uh, that that don't matter into something that does. (laughs) Well, we are so glad to have you. Uh, we met oh, like a decade ago through mutual friends. You've taught me many things. Well, and it's funny because, you know, Tinder was just coming out when... <laughs> we met. No, we didn't meet through Tinder. Um, no, it's it's really fun to have uh, stayed connected with each other's journeys off and on um, and sort of be able to see where life has thrown us over the last 10 years. Absolutely. You are... You are someone that comes to mind when I think of someone that understands story. You're like a master storyteller, worldwide communicator. Mm. Um, how would you, how do you, how would you, what are some of your, uh, brag a little bit? <laughs> what have you been up to? Well, you know, I, um, I've been really, really fortunate to, um, to really find what I was passionate about fairly on, early on in my journey and be able to really focus a lot of my attention in time on pursuing those things that were going to be the most life-giving to me. And so, you know, over the last 10 years, um, I, I've done everything from uh, worked closely with uh, Tom Cruise and, and Paul McCartney and Tom Hanks to, uh, to writing books on storytelling, to consulting on major feature films, to uh, setting down with government leaders of other countries and talking about how to change the narrative in their nation. Um, I, I've also been very fortunate to, you know, sell some of my creative work, which has helped me uh, eat because I like a little cheese on my Whopper. And I've also <laughs> uh, been fortunate enough to have, um, you know, a fair amount of people that have been interested in my ideas about narrative and story um, that, you know, have read my books or have listened to me speak or brought me in to consult. And so I've, I've developed, um, uh, you know, a bit of a, an audience of people that are interested in hearing me uh, discuss those things. And so I, I have to tell you, it's all a reflection uh, for me to look back at how I grew up in this little town in East Texas. And I really believed that if maybe 
I could get a job at the tire factory on the edge of town and just maybe talk some woman into marrying me and maybe, maybe, maybe one day buy a house that my life would be, I would, I would end the game so far ahead of what I thought I would if I could just do those things. So to sit here today and, you know, talk about some of the things that I've been able to do, if I walk out of my front door right now and get hit by a bus, I'm finishing so far ahead of where I ever dreamed life could go that every day I wake up and sort of pinch myself and say, what sort of crazy thing may come my way today? And that's just sort of been the adventure in life that I have have tried to um, step into constantly. That's amazing. Well what? said. Also, nice name drop. You just, Ellie's really yeah, got, you, did, you figured you it out. <laughs> really great. nice name drop. I, you know, I was going to, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask you, there's tons of different ways that this thing, our interview could go, but I'm so fascinated by one of the things you just said, which was that every morning you wake up and pinch yourself and wonder, how do I get to do this? How do you stay in that place mentally, John? Because it seems that most people, when they achieve success, myself included, we bring our expectations up to the level we're at and then push them forward and then find ourselves feeling regret or discomfort for where we're at. How do you do that? How do you stick with that narrative for yourself? Yeah, it's a really good question because I'm really deliberate about it. And there, it's sort of a two-pronged approach. Um, one prong is being extremely, extremely in touch with my own curiosity there has to be something that I am constantly chasing, uh, a, a mystery that I'm solving. And these things come in, in seasons. You know, I get interested in something and I just do a deep, deep dive on that subject uh, and, and become just, you know, enraptured by it. Right now, I'll give you an example. Um, I found out about uh, this, the last American Dime Museum in New York City was a place called Hubert's Dime Museum. It closed <laughs> down in the 1960s when Times Square was, you know, just a, a really rough place. But there was this guy, uh, a little person that worked there that was sort of the barker for the sideshow there. And his name was Andy Potato Chips. And I have become fascinated by Andy Potato Chips, where I've been trying to track down all these people that knew him. And I've mm. tracked down uh, the little um, cards he would sell and autograph for people. And I've bought those on eBay. And I've, uh, I've just went really deep on Andy Potato Chips. Now, a lot of people would say, man, you're a busy guy. You're writing books. You're doing consulting. What does Andy Potato Chips have to do with anything you're doing? And the firm answer is nothing. And that's what's so great about it, mm -hmm. because it sort of opens up this area of mystery and fascination in my life that I don't know what will happen with that. It's unplanned mm -hmm. and maybe nothing will happen. But I love having that that aspect of life. The second prong to that approach of, of sort of staying in that place is I became deeply, deeply interested in the concept of wonder a few years ago because... Mm. Wonder for me, when I was growing up, I had a few experiences. The first time my grandfather took me to a circus, the first time my parents took me to Marvel Cave in Missouri, and we toured this cave. I had a few experiences growing up where I had this very intense encounter with wonder, where I was just flooded with this feeling of something much larger than myself. And 
I started to ask myself a few years ago, is wonder something that happens in retrospect? Do we just look back and say, wow, that was, you know, that was a moment of wonder. Or could we actually recognize when something is happening, I'm experiencing wonder right now. And Mm -hmm. I kind of came to the conclusion, yeah, you can experience wonder in the moment. And then I, I went even deeper with that and said, is there maybe a way that I could create a regular pattern of wonder in my life? Like, could I, I pursue that in such a way that wonder was a regular part of my um, practice or my, my rituals in life? Yeah. And, you know, I don't always hit the mark there, but I'm, I'm really deliberate about trying to pursue wonder and I, I tell you, it sort of keeps me in that place, like you asked, Josh, where I wake up every morning pinching myself, sort of mm. saying, like, what are we going to do today? What's life going That's to awesome. hold today? Was there a gap between in the wonder years? You see, guys, did you guys see what I did? <laughs> I see what you did there. That's nice. <laughs> was there a gap? Do you have the childhood memories? And then did you revisit the wonder because there was a, a period in your life where that wasn't happening? Or yeah. was it consistent? Yeah, no, I... I um. I definitely, <laughs> I, I always was interested, you know, in those things. For me, it became more of a, um, an ability to articulate the things that I needed in life in order to really make life rich for me. I, I think, especially in my 20s and through probably the first half of my 30s, I sort of just bounced and floated a lot. And as yeah. life would, you know, hand things to me, I would respond to those things. Um, I was always a bit entrepreneurial and I was I was trying to make businesses happen. I was trying to make career things happen. But that's all external journey stuff. What I'm talking about is the internal journey. You know, what what is it like mm-hmm. to be me when I get in bed at night? And so for me, there was definitely a gap um, where I recognized, I think I was probably in my mid-30s, and I said, when is the last time I experienced wonder? Because it's been a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And so I I wanted to, um, you know, at that point, uh, discover something. And I'll tell you what it was. Um, I had a friend uh, that... Uh, uh, invited me to come down and, and work on this this project in Orlando. And at that time, uh, Cirque du Soleil had just put in this uh, permanent, it's gone now, but this uh, permanent uh, show in Orlando. Um, and I went and saw that Cirque du Soleil show, and I was so filled with wonder, I couldn't even sleep that night. And it was the first time I, exper- I had experienced that sort of wonder uh, since I was a boy. That's awesome. Wow. Holy cow! Yeah, good to know. They're amazing. Um, well, maybe maybe we back up and we kind of talked a little bit before about uh, sort of some of the the pivotal changes that brought you to that place. What were the what were maybe some of your early memories of like big shifts? Yeah, well, I I had a, a few moments early in my life that um, changed changed me forever, and I know. Um, you know, that that's really what you, uh, you two dive deep on this idea of how and why humans change. And there were two significant, you know, changes in me, um, early on in life, uh, that, that really shifted things. 
The first was, um, just to give you a bit of background, I was born into uh, a, a pastor's home. My father was an evangelical pastor. And oh boy. Yep. Um, I'm a survivor of evangelical Christianity, and I'm, I've lived to tell the tale. Um, but, but my my father was uh, was a, an Assemblies of God pastor. And um, the first, you know, seven years of my life um, uh, were pretty smooth sailing. It, it was it was really good. Um, when I was uh, around seven years old, my father had some things happen in his life. Um, there was a bit of a crisis of faith and he left the pastorate and he went and began to work in areas where um, pastors that leave the pastorate typically go, areas of sales, areas uh, where they can sort of use the charismatic gifts they have in order to make a living. Um, yeah. You know, he, he had a, a background in Bible college, so he didn't really have a lot of other skill sets, you know, to use. Well, this, this led to... Um, a number of years of uh, great difficulty in family finances and tons of experiences of, um, you know, the electricity being turned off and the water being turned off and feeling shame and embarrassment because, you know, friends are over at your house and all of a sudden a tow truck pulls up to repossess your car, you know, the family Mm -hmm. car, just lots of, um, you know, difficulty, uh, with, with finances. And, um, did you know at the time, John, that that was really uncomfortable and hard then and there, or did it take yeah. you? No, yeah. I, w- I was, I was keenly aware of how difficult it was, yeah. um, yeah. at that time. Um, and you know, I, even though I didn't know any different, you know, it was just what life was. I knew it sucked. I yeah. knew it was, I knew other people didn't live this way. And so I, um, uh, you know, just became very, um, <laughs> I guess, adept at being able to function in a very difficult and dysfunctional environment and still find yeah. a way to do life in that. But um, it really, you know, the first big change occurred uh, when I was around 13 years old Um my father had gotten involved with a company where he was uh, connected to the finances of that company. And one week in a, a move of desperation, he wrote a check to himself and put it in the mail and mailed it to our house. And um, he was caught and it led to, uh, you know, mass legal problems for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it uh, I remember, you know, my mother sitting down on the couch with me and my brothers and telling us, um, your dad's going to have to go to prison. And, Whoa. you know, that was, <laughs> that was, Holy crap. uh, that was a moment, you know, when it's, when you're 13 years old, um, that we didn't, they didn't tell us anything, you know, uh, wow. up until this point. So we knew there were problems, but we had no idea this was about to happen. Wow. How old are your brothers uh, at this point? Yeah, we're three years apart. So I was like 13. My middle brother was like 10. And then my youngest brother was like seven. Um, Yeah. So we, it it obviously was was very jarring. My mother uh, didn't have any um, significant education. Um, So, you know, she quickly became a single mother taking care of three boys um, who were all right at the point of adolescence. Yeah. and that was that was a huge, huge thing that changed me. 
But the more significant change came uh, the Christmas, the first Christmas that my father was in prison. And what happened was um, the church we were attending at the time told my mother that they wanted to take up an offering for our family and so that we might have a nice Christmas. Nice thing to do. Um, when the, the Sunday came that they were going to take up this offering, um, the pastor called my mother and me and my brothers up to the front of the church and sort of filled the church in on what was happening and wow. took the offering. <laughs> and I remember standing up there in front of the church, looking out into the faces of my friends who couldn't even meet my eye line because they were yeah. so ashamed for me. And I remember thinking, if this is what God is about, if this is what Christianity yeah. is about, this is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is awful. So wow. yeah, that experience, um, even though I've, I've come a long way and, uh, you know, refinding uh, a flavor of faith I can live with, that was, that was a pretty significant jarring moment um, to experience that sort of public humiliation and public shame that changed me in a way that I, I'm just now coming to terms with the fact that I may not ever fully recover from that experience. It changed yeah. me. And I don't know if I can ever change back to the innocence that I experienced before that. Yeah, that sounds traumatic. Is that it was? Is that what you were saying before? Like, if I could just get a good job in this town, was that sort of? It just knocked you down. It sounds like it just knocked yeah. you down to like. Yeah, I mean survival. Yeah, it's it basically you know at that age, kids are dreaming about being professional sports stars, and kids are dreaming about being. Um, you know, famous movie stars or, you know, having some great success. And my dreams just came to be, could I just have the sort of stability that would allow me the opportunity to just be a normal person where I wasn't, you know, I just wanted a really quiet life at that point yeah. that didn't have that sort of drama. So that's why my dreams became, let me just get a job in that tire factory and have a really plain and normal life. So did uh, that, that um, experience of deep humiliation foster or create a sense of ongoing shame for you? Was that a driving part of your system there forward? Yeah, it, it really was. Um, it, it would be, I would be in my late thirties, uh, before I, before it was articulated to me, the difference between guilt and shame uh, and, you know, guilt being feeling, uh, an emotion based on something you've done, you know, that I feel guilty having done that yeah. shame being an emotion you experience because of who you are. You know, I, I feel ashamed for who I am. Um, and I've become pretty convinced that while guilt is a very healthy emotion to feel guilt about something you've done wrong, sure. uh, shame, not so much. I think there's very, yeah. very few times in life when shame is an appropriate thing to put on people. Um, so I, I really carried that forward in, in some specific areas. Um, it, one of those being, uh, sexuality. I felt like, um, that was, I, I basically remember having conversations, you know, in my teen years with other guys in the church saying pretty much the worst sins as we see it are drinking, smoking, cussing, and having sex. 
Yeah. That's that's the worst. That's that's yeah. as long as you could avoid those things, you could pretty much be okay. And you know, now I look back on that as what a skewed version of spirituality mm-hmm. uh, that that led to. And basically, you know, when when a guy goes through adolescence, adolescence, you have these you know feelings that start arising that you say, oh my God, there's no way I am not the worst person that should be ashamed of who I am. Not because I've done something, but these feelings I'm having. It's coming from inside of you. That's right. So you're broken. Yeah, exactly. So I, I sort of embraced and, and, you know, one of the things that discouraged me, I think during that time, I was still a very curious person, ask a lot of questions. But part of the problem was, you know, the the flavor of Christianity I was involved in and exposed to had an answer for everything. You know, everything uh, had a an answer. There was there was never an appropriate time just to say, yeah, that's really nuanced and complex. And man, I, I can't give you a great answer about that. Everything had a really simple answer. And it sort of stunted my growth as a human being And, and sure. that. I think is is something I struggle a bit with the bitterness I've experienced about not just the shame piece, but also that this um, this religious tradition, which I've later found a great deal of beauty in, actually was responsible for causing me to be less of a human being. Yeah, early in life, because you have this internal. Police officer that's yeah. reminding you on a regular basis of all the things that you should feel ashamed about, and then you have these external rules that are consistently showing you what is and isn't good, what you are and aren't allowed to do, and it's it's kind of like if I'm not mistaken, you just have this military of police surrounding you at all times yeah. that's keeping you in check and. Yeah. Any type of curiosity about yourself or about the world around you is met with both literal shaming and ostracism if you're stuck in the wrong environment, but then also all the internal that got built up over the years, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's interesting because that internal that gets built up over a period of time, um, how that plays out in your life, I think, depends a lot on your personality. If you're someone Mm -hmm. who you know, projects things onto other people, you're going to take a certain worldview, you know, with those feelings. Um, If you're someone like myself, that sort of has this underlying assumption that I'm the problem anyway, Mm. man, it turns into depression. And for me, that depression, you know, was something I inherited biologically. My grandfather uh, was hospitalized for clinical, clinical depression, but I carried that depression, you know, in the ways that I'd seen others in my family carry it. And that's by acting like you don't have it, Um, which which really works well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, through through years of counseling since I've learned that actually that depression um, when it's stuffed down like that, it, it's anger. <laughs> and I, I come, I came to recognize later that I had a great deal of anger about the things that had happened to me early in life and the positions that I was put in. So, um, 
anger did not and still does not come really naturally to me. So part of my most recent journey and how I find myself even changing right now mm. is the last year or two really trying to get in touch with what does healthy anger look like? How is that expressed? Because I never saw it sure. growing up. So how does it work? Right. Yeah. That's super interesting question. Yeah. It, it's something yeah. Our, our culture doesn't really do well at. So I have turned to the wisdom of Twitter to try and help me figure out how to express healthy anger. And Reach it's working it. really Amen. well. Yep. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I think I think for me, uh, I think there's definitely a lot of anger, which is just frustration of things growing up. Or just whatever. But like, this, I don't think any emotion can necessarily be bad. It can't be it's all for a reason. Like, what what in the world do you do with this? It's interesting. How how did you how did you even get out of that state? How did you move from a small town to the next thing? Yeah, because that's that's a big sorry to to jump no. on what Lee said. Like, from other people that I've talked to in my own experience, going from that environment that's so heaped with shame yeah. to anything outside of it, let alone counseling, yeah, that's yeah. a huge leap. Yeah, and it took a long time. It wasn't something that happened. I was not brought up to believe that... Um, I, I was brought up to believe that counseling was sort of a last resort. Like, only pe right. people that are either just about to be committed to an asylum or people that are just about to get divorced. That's the only right. people that should go to counseling. Yeah. I think, um, for me... Um, Getting there, and we can talk about the the external journey of sort of what brought me there as well. But you know, the the internal journey of that was um, really reaching a place that the narratives that I had embraced in my life just weren't working anymore, and I was not willing to keep trying to employ these narratives that just weren't working anymore and I decided I need a new story and to me that's what that's really what change is about is deciding to embrace a new narrative about the world about your own life about your work um I think the narrative the way the human brain works is we create narratives about everything when I'm driving in traffic and somebody cuts me off, I create a narrative about that guy that cut me off. That guy's a right. terrible human being. He's the antagonist in this story who's out to get me. You know, I create narratives about... Well, that's kind of true. I mean, yeah. let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it, right? Right? I mean, it's so easy to buy into these narratives that, um, mm -hmm. that the world is all about me. And all of this is my story and everybody is playing characters that either are supporting me in accomplishing my external goal or trying to keep me from accomplishing my external goal. And while I'm a huge story guy, I also recognize that worldview can be a real problem. Mm -hmm. It can be something that separates you um, from your best self. But I chose to look at the narrative, some of the narratives I was living into and saying, these narratives, um, I, I'm going to just have to turn loose of. One of those narratives mm -hmm. was, John is such a nice guy. Everybody loves him. Everybody <laughs> uh, thinks he's great. And I right. I loved that narrative. Mm -hmm. We're, we're about 30 one. minutes into but that the was interview and I, I don't like you. 
<laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> um, wait, but wait, so you, yeah. are you saying you didn't like being the nice guy anymore? Oh no, I I, I still love being the nice guy. I still love you it. Say, I wanted to go back. You said you sort of hit this point where your narrative wasn't working anymore. Was that yeah. sort of like a rock bottom? Yeah, thing of like, yeah. I mean, l- uh, let me tie in some of the things that ha- sure. were happening externally in my life. Um, I see. Yeah, that I think that, I see uh, where you're going with this. Yeah, you see where I'm going with this, right? Um, <laughs> I um, I had worked for the same organization in Colorado for um, about eight years, and um, had I was sensing in myself that I wanted something more in life, something bigger. Um, and I had an opportunity to move to New York and to start a film program at a college in New York, um, which is where I met Leaf, actually. Well, no, I actually met him before that, but he and I got to know each other there. And at that, at that college, um, it was such a radical change from the eight years I had spent in Colorado, um, that my life was thrown into a great deal of upheaval. Um, huh. Not the least of which was uh, my wife, who had uh, she and I had been married for um, uh, about eight years as well. Um, we got to a place in our relationship. Some things happened. And because part of that's her story, I'm not going to get into detail. But we went through some things that uh, we uh, ended our marriage uh, mm. While we were there in New York, which is an extremely popular thing to do when you're working at a Christian college, by the way, they <laughs> when professors get divorced. So the, the college um, in New York was a Christian college. Yeah, it was a Christian college, and it, um, uh, you know, about a week after it had gotten out that I was getting divorced, you know, I got a phone call from the president of the college and he took me to breakfast one morning and, um, you know, it was sort of the, would you just like admonish you and say you need to stay with her or what? (laughs) No, he was, he was wanting to get all the information and he was, you know, but it was, it was definitely the tone was, you know, we don't condone divorce around here. Um, you know, so, it's like, wow, thanks for your concern. This is the hardest thing I've went through in years. Thanks yeah. for your love right. and concern. How what was the oh, what was the gap in time between moving to New York and getting divorced? Uh it was um maybe eighteen months. It, it was not Jeez. long. Yeah. So you moved to wow. New York, you start a new career, yeah, and you get divorced. That'll that'll do it. That'll do it. So, um, you know, they say one big life change in a short period of time is enough to, you know, uh, yeah. take someone over the edge. And I, I had like a lot of life changes in a short, you know, amount of time. And this life that, you know, when I lived in Colorado, I had, um, I had a good job, and you know, my wife and I had bought a home together, and we we didn't have any children, um, but we we had really established a really comfortable life. So. Moving to New York was a real upheaval of yeah. all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, there there are certain things that we could blame the, the dissolving of the marriage on. But I, I think the beginning of the end was just moving out of the comfort zone there. Because it forced after, you to look at some things critically or it brought some things to light that weren't previously visible? I, at the time, I could not have articulated any of that. It yeah. just seemed to all just be happening. 
Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Looking back in retrospect, I, I think now, as I look at it, um, I, I think um, my tendency is to own it for myself and say, I, I, I probably should have uh, handled things differently. And I, I probably should have been more self-aware and, there were just so many things happening internally in my own journey and as well as in my ex-wife's journey, you know, her, her journey, um, while we, you know, right after we moved to New York, she decided to, um, go back to school. And so she, um, actually the commute for her, you know, uh, she went to school in Brooklyn and we were living up North of the city. And so the commute was so long that she decided, you know, the second semester to start living on campus. Uh And so, that, you know, that changed things dramatically as well, being married to someone, but we're not living together. And, yeah. you know, um, so again, there were, there's, we could talk for hours just on what led to, you know, yeah. the disillusion of the marriage. But um, I I found myself very shortly after living in New York, um, divorced, not owning a home not really feeling great about the job or feeling like it was a solid career that I was in feeling like I didn't have anything to hold on to very much. And two years prior, did you feel like those things were all pretty well nailed down? Everything, everything. Hmm. Yeah. So it, it was, um, it was by far the most difficult season of my life. And that's including going through my father's, incarceration. Um, Mm -hmm. um, But this was by far the most difficult uh, season of my life. And I I didn't feel like I could fully be honest with anybody about what was going on. And I didn't even know how to be honest with myself. Sure. Yeah. Because who could you trust after all those past experiences? Yeah. the, The only people I knew were evangelical Christians who were very judgmental, uh, about, what I was so going through. That. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I decided, you know, what would make things better is if I would, um, now that I was divorced, if I would start dating one of my, um, former students at the school, that that would really improve my standing mm-hmm. at the school. And, um, <laughs> so, you know, I was nominated for moral champion of the year after that. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that that led to more closed door meetings uh, with leadership um, there. Um, and How long were you there for then? The, the total, total, just under three years. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, but I quickly recognized that you know I'm trying to figure out life. I'm just trying to find happiness again. Trying to find some peace within myself, and. Every turn I make, everything I'm doing right now seems to be pissing everybody off. Oh, um, yeah. Right, and so I and that's got to um, be really hard on that shame trigger. Oh man, that that shame uh, cloak was no longer something in the closet. I was going to bed in that thing every night and waking up with it on every day. Yeah, it was it was just heightened. Yeah, but I um I. I had felt for a long time I wanted to be in Los Angeles. I didn't know anybody in Los Angeles. Um, but Why I did really you want to be dis- in L.A.? Well, two things. One, 
I my desire to be a storyteller um, was calling me there to be a part of the film industry. But second, and this is going to sound really weird, I'd come to a recognition of how much climate has to do with my entire demeanor in life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't sound weird. <laughs> New York was really tough for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I would, you know, when it would get super cold, I would just want to bundle up and not do anything. And when it got super hot and humid, I would just want to go to movies and sit in the air conditioning. And it was affecting my creative work and my, my life in general. And I'd been to Los Angeles enough to recognize, wow, I really love the climate here. I love waking up every day and it's sunny and palm trees and um, right. So that, you know, those were really the only two things I had to go on. But I got up in front of um, uh, the students there at the college and basically said, I this summer am going to move to L.A. And anybody that would like to come with me, I welcome you to come. And I those of you who don't, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you might be also. Um, and, uh, there were a collection of graduating seniors that decided to move to Los Angeles with me. Um, and we rented a huge U-Haul truck and they put all their stuff in it and I put all my stuff in it. And we, uh, I drove it across the country from New York to LA and there were a big group of students that moved out with me, um, And to be honest with you, um, I'm still questioning in some part my judgment in some of, you know, the I'm still considering that I might have made some mistakes in I didn't have any other friends in life to turn to. And so many of these students who were finishing school and who had journeyed with me through that that period, they became my closest friends. Yeah. And, you know, I, I worry that I affected their view of leadership and what uh, mentors and leaders are supposed to be during that time. Um, and, and I'm, I feel, um, I feel a closeness still with, uh, you know, um, the, those people that moved out with me, most of them at least. Um, and, you know, occasionally still see them, you know, from time to time and mm-hmm. um, have great, chats and you know but i even a couple of them i've apologized that they wow. had to know me during the worst season of my life i feel like well that's when we met so yeah i'm glad you brought it up well, you're, you're forgiven thank you and we could also have them all on the podcast if you want mm. we yeah, could let's just do, do that a theme. Let's, surprise guest let's yeah. let's see if we could resurrect that shame uh in my life uh, <laughs> we could do that <laughs> i was gonna say i know it's a few decades at this point from being a kid who is standing behind a pulpit, turning beet red and wondering what in the world is happening to a guy who's willing to move to L.A. But that is a significant difference in personality to go from, I'm not allowed to do these things, I am allowed to do these things, and having shame be a main driver, to moving to New York and then just packing it up to move to L.A. So if you were to you know, shrink all that down into three sentences... Like, how the heck did that happen? How did you get the mental shackles off to do, even though it sounds like during that time was really hard to be able to make such big changes? It was a really um, simple thing that happened that turned the corner for me. 
And that was, I came to this maturity or this recognition that everybody that I thought had it figured out in life, I came to the sudden realization they didn't. That everybody was just as confused about what to do in life as I was. And that um, everybody was just doing their best. And I, I think, you know, I think that's a place that all of us have to get to and arrive at sometime in our journey is the people, whether it's our parents or family or church members or, you know, whoever it is, we come to realize the human fallibility of, of people, the people we love the most. And it's not that people don't have wisdom and it's not that people are not mentors or, you know, can't be trusted or turned to, but it's a recognition that everybody is just trying to figure it out. And my way of figuring it out is probably going to be just as solid as anybody else's. And since I, this is my life and I'm the one that is going to be responsible for the decisions I make. And I'm also going to be the one that has to go to bed at night that either says, man, I'm feeling really good about what I'm doing in life or just fantasizing about some other life because I'm living this life that everyone else expects of me. And that for me happened over a period of time, but I felt like it happened rather quickly in my sad season in New York was a huge part of that. Because when I, when I got divorced and the people at the school were disappointed in me, I felt disappointment from my family and my parents. Um, I felt all this disappointment. I, I sort of felt like, well, there's really nothing else I can do to further disappoint everybody. Uh, so yeah. I might as well yeah. just do what I want to do now. So moving to L.A., that was a big part of it was um, maybe it was a rock bottom because I, I felt like. Um, I, there's no decision I'm going to make here that's going to, uh, surprise anyone or further disappoint them in some ways that thing, I, that narrative I had I held about wanting everyone to like me and see me as this great guy. Um, I had sort of crushed that narrative uh, yeah. through, through the process of, uh, the divorce. And so it was like, well, that narrative has gone. So now I might as well just try and be the most authentic version of myself I can. Uh, hmm. That's so empowering. And that's the greatest moment when you're like, oh, wait, I can do whatever I want. Yeah. And not everybody's going to like it. And that's okay. I don't need everybody uh, to like it. Um, now, my personality is still as such. I want everybody to like it. Yeah. I want people sure. to like it. But to be honest with you, I don't need them to like it like I used to. Right. And so it sounds like you kind of hit the, I mean, it's all a little blurry from my memory, but what... It sounds like you hit the ground running when you got to L.A. It sounds like yeah. did everything go as as well as it should have movie magic wise? <laughs> uh, not not exactly. I um I got into the very prestigious field of reality television upon moving to ah. L.A. And um, I've heard of it. Yeah, I worked on uh, a number of shows that I I wouldn't even tell my mother the name of the shows because I was afraid she'd go try and watch them and be even further <laughs> disappointed but, um, but you know they were they were um, not the the best presentation of the human condition they were um, really 
<laughs> exciting and enjoying the the utter downfall of humankind. Um, Didn't you say something about vomit once? Yeah, yeah. There were there was one particular show I was working on that um, you know because in L.A. you you start at the bottom, uh, no matter how old you are or who you are. And so I was a production assistant, and um, one of the reality stars had um, had way too much to drink. And they had puked all over one of the rooms. And they were like, uh, yeah, John, um, uh, Tiffany puked in uh, that room over there. Could you go and uh, just get all that cleaned up for us? Thanks a lot. We'll see you at lunch. And, um, you know, it's... I. What's going through your time, head when you're sitting there just cleaning up puke? Are you like the prodigal son? Oh, I've got to go home. What have I done? <laughs> no, you know what was going through my head was... Um, uh, my student loans were what were going through my head was I, I went, you know, I've, at this point, I've got six years of higher education under my belt. I have a master's degree and I am on my hands and knees cleaning up someone else's Jack Daniels fueled vomit. Um, <laughs> that, that was a humbling moment. But, you know, there was another part of me that honestly couldn't have been happier because I felt like. When I got to L.A., I decided I really want to work for this. I don't want somebody to just come along and hand me the keys to the kingdom and make me the next Steven Spielberg. When I arrive at success, I don't want anyone to say that there was an excuse for how I got there. I want to be able to say I climbed up from the bottom. I worked every step of the way up and I don't want to be the guy that hit the lottery. I want to be the guy who who made his own success here. So there's there's no better way to start than cleaning up someone else's vomit because man, there's nowhere to go but up. And that was, you know, that was what I did and working in reality TV. I met um, people that worked on other TV shows and somebody invited me to come and work on this uh, award show. Uh, and that led to working on these televised award shows where I met, you know, again, some of the biggest names in Hollywood, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, Denzel Washington, Paul McCartney. Um, and, and, you know, I was working <laughs> with, with these folks, you know, face to face. Um, and that led to other work in, you know, the film industry. And it's sort of, um, it takes time. You know, the, the film industry is a marathon. It's not a sprint. If you set, you know, a short time to say, I'm going to give this two years. And if it doesn't work out, then I'm leaving. Yeah. You'll, you'll never make it. It's a long line and everybody gets their shot, but you got to wait till you get up to the front of the line. And if you've done all your homework and prepared yourself, when you get to the front of the line, You'll have your chance and it'll be great. But if you if you leave the line, then you got to start all over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you've are you do you feel like you're still waiting for your shot? It's so funny because um, I feel like in many ways um, I've made it, <laughs> hmm. but I still yeah. have things I really want to accomplish. But even those things that I want to accomplish. They're no longer because I I feel like I'm waiting for that shot. I feel like th those now are just new levels of the journey that I would love to explore and get into. But um, I I don't I don't use that framework anymore for myself of waiting for my shot. In some ways, getting to work out here and make money off my creativity every day. I've won, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's like whether, whether or not I'm 
on TV every day or or have my shows produced or, or bought. All that is sort of icing on the cake. The fact that I get to do it and I'm not working in that tire plant back in East Texas, I've won. I, I win, you know. So for me, that's sort of the framework that I hold is whatever has happened and whatever does happen in the future. And I still have goals. I still have things I want to do. But my feeling of having made it is not contingent on those things. Leave was saying that one of your new goals is to produce Titanic 2. That's exciting. <laughs> you know, and I've already produced it in my mind. And I'm just waiting on Cameron to give me the call and, and help me uh, uh, help me realize this vision. So, <laughs> no, I, you know, here, here really is my goal. And this is something that I've thought a great deal about is what is it, you know, I, I'm 44 years old and... You know, I, I've got, what, you know, uh, 20, 30 more years of, of working in the industry in any mm-hmm. capacity. Um, what do I want to see happen in that time? What do I want to do in that time? Mm-hmm. My goal has become helping individuals, cultures, organizations, and even nations tell a better story. That's really mm-hmm. what I want to do. And whether that's a production company that brings me in on a project to talk about how their story could be better or whether that's getting up in front of a group of people and talking to them about how they could change their narratives the same way that I've changed my narratives or whether that's setting down with um, uh, last year I sat down with the uh, Minister of Education and the Minister of Defense from uh, a country and we talked about how the narrative in that country could change, how they could tell a better story, you know, in that nation. Whatever it is, I'm, I'm going to tell you probably the most recent significant change in my life and it was a recognition and realization that came to me. Hit it. I stopped looking at my work as something that needed to fall under a job description. And I started to look at my work as an ecosystem. And this ecosystem that I work in is called story. I have this story ecosystem and I have mountains of books that I write and I have rivers of, of podcasts that I do and I have valleys of, of, of blogs that I write for and I have forests of uh, consulting that I do and I have all these things in the ecosystem but they're all connected to story and it makes, um, when I started to treat my work like an ecosystem that has, that's a living, breathing thing I started to recognize I need new streams coming into the ecosystem, but I also need to, when an area of the ecosystem has died, I need to treat it that way. I need to care for it that way. And when I started approaching my work as an ecosystem, um, it really was very freeing for me. And it also helped me to determine that when it came time to make decisions about what was the good that kept me from the best in my work when I'd get multiple opportunities, the question always came down to how does this fit in the ecosystem? Is it part in the ecosystem? I had an opportunity uh, a year or so ago, somebody wanted me to get involved with um, a Bitcoin business. And uh, I was like, I was like, <laughs> yeah, Bitcoin's never going to be worth anything. You're an idiot. <laughs> so so sorry I made that mistake. But no, um, <laughs> I, I actually, um, I'm glad I didn't jump into that opportunity because it didn't fit into the ecosystem. 
mm-hmm. that it's not part of the story ecosystem that I work in. So for me, it's not trying to determine, John, are you a writer, a consultant, a yeah. teacher, an author? What are, What is it you do? We're so big in this country on what it is you do. That's sure. not as important to me. What's important to, to me is tending to this ecosystem. I think a lot of people will resonate with that, John, especially people in the creative field, because I think a lot of people who do get into creative work do it because they just love creativity and are willing to explore that in a lot of different mediums. And I think a lot of the creative angst that people have in their careers and their job is because they get stuck in a medium and they get, they get pegged as a writer or a filmmaker or a designer and get bored a lot of times. So I think that concept of ecosystem will really, it's resonating with me. Um, I wanted to ask you about the comment you made about better stories that infers Mm. that there is a worse story and a better story. What does better mean? And for people who don't have any idea what storytelling is as a profession, can you talk about how that's not just polishing a different version of the exact same narrative, but it's, it's shifting the whole, the whole story itself, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. It's interesting because I really got away from talking about good stories and bad stories, because that can often be very subjective. Um, But I think all of us can agree there are better stories. You know, no matter how good a story is, we can say, well, this would be an even better story. So someone who, you know, say, say myself, the the guy who uh, goes to work and works at the tire factory and, uh, you know, marries and has a house. That's a that's a fine story. It's not that that's a good or a bad story. But is that guy capable of a better story? Yeah, there's probably some area of his life that he's capable of a better story. Well, it's the same with fictional stories. Are there ways to take aspects of fictional stories and and make them better? So rather than just talking about making a whole story better, I have this concept I talk about um, of narrative shards. And these are just pieces of the narrative mosaic that we can polish and and make um, better. Now, I I do grant there are (laughs) certain stories that we as a culture have determined this is a better story than this. So a story of someone who um, comes from the bottom and is an underdog is a better story than a child molester who continues to molest children and never gets caught. Yeah. Um, there, right. there, there are, um, like morality know, shows up in, in, in that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But for me, um, you know, the, the idea of a better story really goes back to looking at um, setups and payoffs. You know, good stories are about setups and payoffs. And so many of us, even in life, whether this is in a fictional story you write or whether this is in your own life, so many of us live with the expectation of a payoff that we never set up. Uh And many of us... um, will work for uh, through a setup expecting a certain payoff and it pays off differently than what we set up. Mm -hmm. And it's mainly because we don't understand these narrative concepts of setups and payoffs. Can you give an example of those two things, John, even if they're fake examples? Yeah, sure. Um, So for example, 
Um, a lot of times, um, I'm, I'm going to give you a fictional example and maybe a real life example. Right. So a fictional example would be we set up a guy um, who uh, is is searching for the lost Ark of the Covenant for the first two thirds of a story. Uh-huh. And then in the last uh, part of the story. Is this a real story? He, Maybe. (laughs) In the last part of the story, he finds um, the love of his life and just ends up going and living this life. And we don't even address the lost Ark of the Covenant anymore. Well, we set up a story that we didn't pay off there. Um, And that's going to be very frustrating for people. And that's a pretty extreme example. But so often... Um, we we do that in the, the narratives that we create. We set up a story that is paid off completely differently, and then we try and equate those two things and say, here's the ending of this story. And it's like, yeah, but you if you wanted that ending, you should have set that up as is the story, you know, from the beginning. So huh. that's sort of a fictional example. In someone's personal life, um, many times... Um, I think we've done a disservice to people in um, preaching to people that success is the ultimate goal in life. Mm-hmm. We set pe- we say the setup is success. If you work hard for success, then the payoff is going to be happiness. And that is a payoff that is not equated to the setup. Yeah. Um, I think if we want happiness or if we want wonder, to be what pays off, we have to set up wonder in our lives. We have to set up happiness in our lives. And setting up success is going to lead to the product of success, which is not happiness. You may have money. You may have resources. You may have you know, uh, a, a career. You may have all these things, but they don't necessarily equal happiness. So um, understanding sort of the layers that go into setups and payoffs are one way that people uh, don't understand narratives in order yeah. to uh, live a better story. So you're right. you're meeting with a uh, you're meeting with the minister of education, and you're having a conversation about how to tell a better story. Does that look like, hey, um, you have a great education program going here? You're just you just don't know how to talk about it in a way that no. your public understands it, or is that conversation? Mm-hmm. Your education program blows. It is literally a bad story. So yeah. you've got to fix this, this, and this if you want to have a narrative that people want to get on board with. I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the countries that I worked with last year, this this one where I met with the Minister of Education, um, we sat down and we talked about what is specifically the problem. What is leading to such a bad narrative here? And couple of days of talking about it and consulting with different leaders, you know, in their culture, um, we determined it's really insecurity. Um, people, or I'm sorry, low self-esteem. People uh, in this country, the government is overthrown every 12 to 15 years. People don't have any sense that things will stay consistent. And so there's a low, a low self-esteem, uh, I'm sorry, a low self-esteem mm-hmm. within the people that says, Nothing could ever change. Nothing could ever be any different. And that low self-esteem is the problem we've got to address. That's the story that people are living into. So what we did is I I went and asked them, well, 
what is something that has been consistent for at least 40 years here? What's something that has not changed in a generation? Mm. They thought about it and they said, well, our football team has been good for 40 years. That's, mm-hmm. that's something that's been consistent. So I said, okay, great. Let's do this then. Let's, um, let's involve members of the football team in, um, in the education here. Let's involve members of the football team in talking about the consistency and how this team has stayed consistent. Um, and let's try and connect that to the culture at large. Hmm. And so, again, this work is still going on. This is still um, kind of current stuff, even though I haven't been down there um, this year yet. But I, I, I'm seeing, I saw their eyes light up in that and mm. saying, yeah, that is something that we can hold on to is finding something that people can believe in to say, yeah, actually, um, you know, higher, higher esteem is possible when you look at the consistency of the football team. We can all agree this football team has been consistently good. It's possible. What are they doing that we could also do? And so that that's just like a, a, a really yeah. surface example, but that's the sort of um, breaking apart the narrative to identify what is the problem, you know, in the narrative. Um, and sometimes, I'll, I'll be honest with you, um, one of the problems, like in the American narrative, in my experience, is we have so thoroughly embraced the Hollywood narrative system, which insists on a good guy and a bad guy. You don't see this as much in European film, yeah. but mm-hmm. we need a bad guy for everything. So right. in order for us to um, um, you know, move forward in culture uh, in America, we're going to have to consider other models besides finding an antagonist to our own perceived protagonist. Um, mm-hmm. everything can't be about now, granted there's bad guys out there and bad girls. Um, but sure. it, it can't be, that can't be the framework that we're constantly working. Everything in culture through is me turning that jerk who cut me off on the freeway into the antagonist, yeah. the bad guy. So the, there, the, there's all these different layers and someone who's listening can apply these because you're, you're looking at a metacultural level of the ideologies that we've accidentally bought into such as antagonist protagonist and then there's the refinement of well no actually this person's capable of more so they're not living a bad story but there's better for them there's more humanity to be had for them Uh, Mm -hmm. and then it sounds too like there's this aspect of um okay you have something here but now we got to figure out a way to communicate it that makes sense to people at large. Do you run the gamut on those things? Do you spend your time on one over the other or is it just all over? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this question mm. because what, what I uh, lean into is mythology and ritual. Um, in my spare time, the last three years, I have been pursuing a PhD in mythology. Uh, and I complete that this next year. And it has truly been life altering for me wow. to learn the stories behind the stories, the the um, the same stories that keep appearing in culture uh, century after century in people group after people group. Um, you know, if you 
buy into the work of Carl Jung, he called this a collective unconscious that we're all able to share and tap into. And there's a reason, for example, that every major culture uh, has a flood myth story, even though they never communicated with each other. Uh, there's something in the human psyche that that flood myth story really resonates with. And we, we sort of need that idea of the earth, the slate being wiped clean on the earth. Um, so I lean into mythology and ritual. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, there's there's a, a really interesting um, uh, myth in Greek mythology uh, about Cassandra. And Cassandra is this woman who is entrusted with the gift of prophecy, but cursed in that no one ever believes her. So she has this powerful gift of prophecy, and she's right. But the wow. curse is nobody ever believes her. That sounds like a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And, but what it's meant to resonate with is there's times in all of our lives, all of us feel like, man, I saw this coming a million miles away and nobody listened to me. Yeah. yeah. And that's a powerful concept. And so that, that story has been around for more than 3,500 years in culture mm -hmm. and we sort of keep telling that story because it's a part of us it's a part of our psyche so i lean into myths um i lean into ritual i think we in the united states have become an age without a mythology uh we have we have basically shucked all our mythologies except for one huh. and we still believe that our money will save us and Boy, could we not be more wrong about that. When you look at your research around the U.S. in particular and ditching some of these myths, what were some of the myths that we used to have that we no longer have? Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting um, because uh, part of the melting pot culture of the United States is that so many different myths came to play together in the United States. And you especially see in the authors of uh, the mid to late 1800s, you know, when, when work like Moby Dick is being written, um, uh, the, the work uh, um, of, uh, of oh, I'm spacing on his name, the guy that wrote A Christmas Carol, Charles... Um, Charles Dickens. Dickens. Charles Dickens, thank you. Charles Dickens, <laughs> Charles I believe that's how it's Dickens. pronounced. Um, but yeah, Dick, Dickens' work, you know, uh, Oliver Twist and all these stories about... Um, people being able to move beyond their station. This is still a, um, this was still a very important myth, even into America until fairly recently, is that people could move beyond their station. Now, this myth goes, uh, we trace it back through the folk tales of Cinderella, because we all are familiar, even almost every culture on the earth has some version of the Cinderella story of someone uh, who was able to move uh, past their station and become the, you know, wedded to a prince at the end mm -hmm. and move up culturally. Um, and I, we really embraced that myth for many, many years in the United States until fairly recently. And I think that's one of the problems we're facing right now is we've lost that myth that people can actually change their station in uh in culture in the united states so well that's think, a good one yeah john because i'm curious this gets at that question earlier about the difference between the the literal outline of a story being wrong versus the communication of the story being wrong yeah so that 
loss of moving beyond your station as a myth, did we lose that as a belief or did it emerge that it wasn't, is no longer an option? What do you think? That is a, well, I think you have to get at the nature of belief there. What causes people to believe something? Is, I, there's one theory that says, I don't really get to choose what I believe. Like I could try and convince you, Josh, Santa Claus is real. Santa Claus is real. And you could try your hardest to believe that. But at the end of the day, you're probably not going to believe that. So do you choose what you believe or are beliefs the product of experiences? In other words, are our beliefs formed because we have experiences and we say, I believe this because I have seen in my own experience for this to be true. Mm-hmm. I, I think, to be honest with you, there's a, a complex web uh, around belief. So I, I can't really give a clear answer to your question yeah. because I've, I think it's complicated. I know people that claim to believe things that deep down I really question if they believe, but their identity is so wrapped up in that belief that they can't, they could never admit to themselves that they don't truly believe it. So there's a connection between belief and identity that gets very, very complicated. And when you ask someone to acknowledge a changing belief, you may be asking them to acknowledge a change in their own identity. And it may just be too much for someone to handle. Mm Mm-hmm. Like a Republican Democrat right now. Is that is that where this is going? I didn't say it, but I, that may be what I, that might be applicable if the shoe fits, right? How do you do this at a cultural level? So uh, there's an extreme disparity in what we want as our outcome and what the setup is. Yeah. And we probably can't get someone to go from A to Z, but we let's say culturally need to get them from a to b in order to get them down to road to z assuming of course that there are um that there is a quote-unquote right or a better way of doing it how yeah. do you do that at a, at a at scale yeah like, well you you have to realize as it scales up it is like turning a massive freight liner you know these things don't turn on a dime or you will turn yeah. the whole ship over yeah. so um, I, I, let me give you um, an example in, in history of, of something where a narrative changed as a result of a story. Uh, for more than 2,000 years, the Chinese practiced foot binding. It was a very horrific practice where they would uh, confine a woman's foot to this lotus shoe that would literally break the bones in her foot in order to um, cause her foot to be very small and walk at a certain angle. It had nothing to do with the women themselves. It had everything to do with their husbands and their husband's status. Because if your wife had her feet bound, it showed all the other men that you were wealthy enough that your wife didn't have to work out in the field. Yeah. So it was a status symbol among men. Now, this goes on for 2,000 years. In the early part of the last century, a woman named Pearl S. Buck writes a book called The Good Earth. And The Good Earth, it's not the focus of the book, but it mentions a character that has her feet bound. And we hear the story of this character. The book is an international bestseller. It goes around the world. Um, but it starts provoking the question, does that still happen in in China? Are there still women with their feet bound? Shame is a big part of the culture uh, in China. And within one generation, 
within 40 years, the practice completely stops. The narrative is completely changed in the country in one generation. That sounds profound in the context of 2,000 years, something stopping in 40 years. But think about that right now. That's, that's turning the ship pretty fast, and it happened in 40, a 40-year 40 period. But for us, that would seem very slow. Think back 40 years you know, yeah. ago. That's the mid-'70s. Think of all that's happened. So I think part of... Um, Part of uh, um, the the ability to look at what is happening in culture is the ability to take a very broad view. I'll give you one last little example. If um, if I came into Leaf's apartment and as soon as I came in, I immediately took an axe and chopped his leg off. Sure. Well, we've all thought about it. We've all thought about it. Um, You know, anyone standing there would probably question my sanity, right? They would say, that guy's a crazed killer. Mm -hmm. But if you found out that I had just learned that Leaf has gangrene in his leg, and if it's not removed immediately, he's going to die. Well, all of a sudden, the context of my action there changes quite a bit. Now I'm not... A, a sadistic uh, killer. Now I'm I'm a a, a savior. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the the context, the larger scale and context of these things, becomes tremendously tremendously important as we take a very broad view and try and look at things over time. And that's that's tough to do as human beings. But I think it's a, a significant part of addressing the challenge you're talking about there, Josh. Um, yeah. That we, we've got to be able to look at things as even if something takes 100 years to change in the grand scope of humanity, that's a pretty fast change. Hmm. Is it ever okay to use a emotion that is unpleasant to facilitate change? I was struck by the story of the foot binding yeah. leveraging accidentally shame. And we've even talked to Nay about how unhelpful shame seems to be almost universally. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there are times when it is appropriate. For example, um, if I um, run into a building and I scream at people and push them, um, that seems very inappropriate unless I'm doing it because there's a fire in the building. There's a time for a very totalitarian approach to leadership. Mm-hmm. But it's not sustainable. You can't you can't just continually operate in that. It should only be employed when the there is a a time limit uh, on people needing to act. Like it's got to happen by this, or people will be destroyed. So you know, my opinion on that is that um, you have to have people that are are crafting these narratives with the sort of wisdom to know when to employ a, a harsh tactic like that. Yeah. Um, what, what happens more commonly in our culture is we've, you know, we're living right now in this culture of outrage where everything is the worst thing in the world. Right. And there, you know, it sort of has become, going back to, again, myths, it's become the folktale of the boy who cried wolf. Nothing seems to have significance anymore because everything has significance. Yeah. Everything's and we, like at 11 volume right now. Exactly. And that's unsustainable. So until we are able to uh, go back and embrace a, a maturity 
um, that has a a large scope and spectrum of emotion, then it's going to be a really difficult thing to use you know harsh emotion in order to try and motivate people. The one exception I would have is um, I am not big at all on using fear to motivate people. Now, again, there's there's one or two appropriate times, you know, where uh, if you say the ship is sinking, we got to get off the ship. Yeah, that's going to create fear. Um, but you, you've got to be careful about using that. You've got to be telling the the absolute truth there. And you can't just be saying, well, I thought the ship was sinking. You know, you yeah. you've got to be you've got to be right if you're going to employ that tactic. Um, so but for the most part, um, this is one thing that I really am disheartened by currently in culture is the use of fear to motivate people um, because uh, I, I feel like that was used against me growing up. The fear of eternal damnation, um, the fear of people not liking me. Fear was used as a tactic against me. Uh, and so personally, that that's sort of a sensitive area for me anytime somebody, one tries to use fear to motivate me. Well, I think I think most people who have experienced even a boss who tries to use fear can resonate with how unsustainable it is. Yeah. Coaches and athletes, it works for a little while. And then all this stuff comes out about even abuse or just feeling like my confidence is shot. I, I can't even fo- function anymore because I'm terrified. Um, and fear being so prevalent in our country right now. You've studied myth. You know history pretty well, it sounds like. Where are we right now in, yeah. a, in a narrative, and where are we headed? Yeah. I, I love that you asked that question because I think it's very easy to lose hope. And you have to recognize that history, uh, and myth for that matter, but history greatly operates on a pendulum. And things swing from side to side. And it's so easy to take the short view and say things are just getting worse and things have never been this bad. And, um, you know, you go back and look at uh, near the end of the uh, Roman Empire, what was happening culturally at that time. Yeah, we we haven't quite got there yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, so the, the pendulum tends to shift. And when things do reach an extreme, like I feel we're in an extreme now, typically what happens is the pendulum slowly begins to swing back the other way. And I think we will see uh, the pendulum begin to swing back uh, the other way. I'm very, very hopeful about, um, you know, the the millennials coming into uh, power. Um, I think if we look at their voting records, we look at the millennials' position on social issues, look at the millennials' position on caring for people around the world, um, I'm encouraged by that. People are still going to be people. Power still corrupts people. Um, But I I do think, um, I think we have just a little bit further to go in the pendulum swinging. I think um, our our present level of um, uh, government is probably unsustainable. And we're going to have to see some pretty massive shifts and cracks in that uh, before the pendulum starts to swing back. Um, But I'm, I'm, um, I'm also encouraged. The last thing I'll say about it is this. Um, in studying mythology, what you're really studying is depth psychology. And when, oh. you, when you choose not to deal 
with a shadow in the cultural psyche, it just comes back with a different face. So, you know, we, Hitler arose in the cultural psyche, you know, of the world. I don't know that we fully dealt with the implications of, of separating people in the way that Hitler did. And so I feel like what has, you know, happened um, throughout history is just the ideas that Hitler was espousing. They just come back with a different face because we haven't truly dealt with the underlying cycle. We just want to stamp out the psychological shadow. We don't deal with why do people feel so insecure and powerless that they need to resort to these ideas and tactics because that it's so much easier to just throw rocks at people than it is to actually deal with the underlying psychological uh, issues. So my hope is in the age of Trump, we will actually deal with the underlying feelings that uh, happen in the culture that, that got him elected and that we don't just suppress them or stomp them out so that 40 years from now we're dealing with these same problems all over again. Yeah, it, really well said. I wonder if if part of what we're experiencing with if this is the if this is the climax of the pendulum, I wonder if this is the result of 40 years ago of of a swing in the other in the other direction and I'm struck by what you're saying about not dealing with the shadows of the past and it seems like two others that strike me right now are slavery and monuments uh and sexual abuse and um the what's happening there that there's a reckoning with some of these things yeah well back to my example of the ecosystem Growing up in East Texas, one thing that I became intimately familiar with and some of your Midwest listeners may uh, really resonate with is um, a lot of people had compost piles. Do you guys familiar with the idea of the compost pile? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the compost pile um, is pretty disgusting to have to go out and look (laughs) at, but it actually is a very helpful part of an ecosystem to put rotted food uh, out there for the bugs and the maggots to eat. And so that the uh, larger animals will come and eat those bugs and maggots. And the process of regenerating life, it's a pretty disgusting process to watch (laughs) up close um, in a compost pile. And I think in some ways, we are watching um, the process of the compost pile in our culture right now. We're seeing some of the, the nasty ugliness of, um, of change. And we're seeing people, um, we're seeing some of the, I, what I hope are the last breaths of some of these old ideas um, being expressed. And I think in the process of the compost pile, um, we're going to see those ideas that the maggots are feeding on right now, uh, eaten by larger bugs, which are eaten by other animals. And again, I think there's a ton to to understand about the psyche of culture in looking at the organic processes of the earth and nature. We can understand a lot about what's happening in the world by looking at how life in the world has sustained itself for millions of years. Or 7,000 years, if you're a <laughs> biblical liberal. Sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified uh, that we were going to get a lot of hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
No, I, I'm I, again, I love talking about this stuff. So you'll never shut me up on this. So I know you guys go about an hour and I know we've went well above that. So I'm, yeah. I'm happy to call it a call it a day. But you guys are, are awesome to want to engage these conversations. I, I feel like they're they're really important right now. Um, and I, I, I think the theme of your podcast is really important right now. Of, of looking at, again, why and how humans change. Um, I don't know if there's a better question the culture could be asking for this moment in history. Wow, thanks, John. I mean that. Are you, are you up for um, talking a little bit about religion and, it's, and your shift there and where you're at? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, um, I you know, have also had a pendulum in my life when it comes to religion, where at various times I've sort of swung away and swung back towards. Um, I went through a period where I really hated going to church and being around Christians, but I went anyway. And it was probably the most unhealthy um, season of my life, to be honest with you, because I was forcing myself into a ritualistic practice with which there was no true mythology behind. And I can tell you that ritual without mythology often leads to violence, whether that's physical violence or psychological violence. Yeah. Um, Expound on that. What were you, what, what, elaborate, please. Yeah. So I was I was going to church and, and doing the things that I was told I was supposed to do in participating in the rituals, whether they be communion or prayer or, uh, you know, Bible studies or whatever. I was participating in those rituals. But honestly, I, w- I was leaning into the rituals to actually supply the belief that the rituals would somehow produce the belief as opposed to the rituals being an expression of the belief. Yeah. The only way that ritual works, and I am a firm believer in ritual. I love ritual. But the only way that ritual works is if it is an expression of belief. Ritual cannot be used to control people or try and create psychology amongst them, or else it it rarely... It, it turns out bad, even if people don't recognize that it's bad. So some people may um, love, you know, for example, the ritual of going to church or, or you know, being a part of a Bible study, um, not realizing that it's causing a spiritual problem for them, um, but it's meeting some other need. So, for example, maybe they love the the social um aspect of of what they get out of that, but they're willing to overlook uh, the the problems that it may be creating um, in their own uh, heart or own spiritual life. So one of the the things that um, has been most shifting for me in the last few years has been as I have... um, um, I, when I moved to Los Angeles, I found a faith community in Los Angeles that I really resonated with and I really liked and I enjoyed going every week. And it was the first time maybe in my life I'd really enjoyed being with other people who shared this faith community. 
a few years ago, as I began to pursue my PhD, um, I was a part of this, or I still am a part of this cohort um, that consisted of a Buddhist monk and a neurosurgeon who had uh, become a, a shaman in South America. Um, there's a number of, uh, there's a couple of women from Iran who are Muslims in the group. Um, there are a couple of people who have an evangelical Christian background like I do. But all these people um, in this group, we're, we're doing, we've been doing life together for the last three years. Um, the Buddhist monk has become a dear friend of mine. He and I uh, are, are, are going uh, in a few weeks to uh, do one of these sensory deprivation tank floats where you float in the water. I love doing these. And um, Oh, man, it, did you it, watch Fringe? Yes, yes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this this monk and I, um, you know, have have become dear dear friends, and studying the religious tr traditions of the world, um, and getting to know people from such diverse spiritual places, has actually greatly caused me to re-embrace my own spirituality in a much different but much more beautiful way. Huh. I I would consider How myself. So? Well, I would consider myself someone who um, is a um, a Christ leaning person of faith who's very uh, very interested in the cosmic Christ in, in the way that Richard Rohr has unpacked that. Um, mm -hmm. Very Big much, fan. yeah, very much a fan of that. I I love some of the work that sort of the post-evangelical guys are doing, guys like um, uh, Rob Bell and uh, uh, the liturgists and some of those uh, guys are doing, you know, tremendous work. I really like um, um, Pete Rollins is a, a Irish philosopher. That, uh, Huge his, fan. Yeah, his work uh, resonates greatly with me. And he's he's, he's become a friend. Um, I, I think, you know, I think here's what's changed for me most significant, most significantly spiritually. I used to want to go to one. I, I, I had sort of a fast food mentality or, or like a grocery store mentality. I wanted to go to one source and get everything I needed for my own spirituality. And for a long time, that was a church and they had, you know, Bible studies and community groups and all different types of things. Yeah. But. As I've moved, you know, forward in my own journey, um, that sort of one-stop shopping is um, something I'm I don't do anymore. So even though I love the work of you know Rob Bell and the liturgists and those guys, I I can't make sort of their movement the one thing I'm all into and all about because then I'm sort of just trading out one flavor of church and spirituality for another. Um, the the bottom line of it is that ecosystem approach I talked about with my own work. That's become my approach to spirituality as well. So huh. I I have this ecosystem approach, and because my own um, uh, background and familiarity with Christianity, I access the divine through the tool of Christianity and through um, you know my Christ leanings, especially in terms of the cosmic Christ. But I, um, I can also read uh, and have read the Tibetan Book of the Dead and get great spiritual insights from that. Um, 
I, I think one of the most interesting passages of Scripture mentions that Moses was trained in all the ways of the Egyptians. The Egyptians were tremendously academic in their scholarly pursuits and read books and, and work of all these uh, other traditions and groups. And I, I think if you only choose to get your information or your um, your engagement in one place uh, of academia, whether that be a Christian college or whether that be a um, uh, a, a Buddhist uh, a seminary or you know what it, whatever it is, if you're only going into one the the door of one tradition, um, you're probably not going to get. Uh, the sort of full picture that you could otherwise. And not everyone's interested in that. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But Cookie for me, plow. I need sort of a, a larger ecosystem approach uh, to to get at this idea of what is the meaning of life? What is, what is our purpose here? And um, what sort of metaphors am I interested in putting on this larger mystery that we sometimes give the label of God? Two questions, John. What books would you recommend? And for people who maybe are thinking about branching out, but are terrified because a lot of their upbringing in many different religions require that they only believe one way, what would you say to them? How can they reshape a story so that they might find more life for themselves if that's the journey they want to go down? Yeah, I, I um, I tell you, there, there have been. I'm a really voracious reader, and so I, I consume a lot of different books. I'll give you some specific titles, but I'm going to recommend authors more than titles because okay. I feel like sometimes um, authors are really good at over the the period of a few different books, sort of unpacking a larger yeah. idea. Um, so one of my uh, favorite people to read is a a depth psychologist uh called james hillman and james hillman um he wrote a a famous book in the 80s called the soul's code um that gets into a lot of this but Hmm. he has a lot of uh uh, of other books that deal with you know clinical psychology and depth psychology and practice he gets into uh issues of mythology um he wrote a book called The Dream in the Underworld that deals with um, the relationship between our dreams and our psyches. And that's a really fascinating work. So, wow. uh, yeah, James Hillman is is someone that um, I think is really fascinating. He is uh, sort of a, a um, philosophical grandson of uh, Carl Jung. Uh, I, I really do recommend, if you're interested in these things, read about Carl Jung's ideas of the collective unconscious, even if you disagree with them, I think it can help shape um, your larger view of, uh, of possibility when it comes mm. to philosophical, theological ideas. Um, I personally, uh, when it comes to myth, huge fan of Joseph Campbell. Uh, that's, that's one of the people that sort of began to introduce me into this type of thinking. Most people are most familiar with his um, 
book that he wrote with a thousand faces which George Lucas read uh, that inspired him to craft a lot of Star Wars uh, Campbell has another book called Thou Art That that looks specifically at religious imagery and religious iconography and how that affects the human psyche um, so I recommend that um, I think um, you know once you begin to read these things um, it's important to sort of engage these materials as looking at uh, building a new wall of let's build a wall, um, building <laughs> a wall of um, of uh, psychological process. And think of these different thinkers and books as, you know, potential bricks in that wall. Um, but again, I think the danger is don't treat any of these as this is the philosophy or the theology of the go-to here. We've got to do this uh, the way this person is saying. The last thing I'll say, and probably the person that from a spiritual perspective has had the most impact on me in uh, the last few years has been Richard Rohr. Um, and man, you know, Falling Upwards is, is probably mm. uh, a great starting point for anybody that is interested Yeah, in these type conversations, but really all of Richard Rohr's work is um, uh, to be highly lauded. Even in my PhD program, when we studied the Christian mythological traditions, um, the instructor required some of Richard Rohr's books in, wow. in that PhD program, just because his work has great appeal outside of just the Christian circles. Um, it, it's very, very impactful. Do you remember a specific moment where you were able to um, or wanted to look outside of the tradition that you grew up with, or was it a slow, uh, slow process? You know, I think the pro it was a process, and the process was more about um, really overcoming fear. I, I was brought up, even though it might not have explicitly been said to me, I was really brought up to feel like um, if you read um, uh, the Mahabharata, which is a, a holy text of the Hindu faith, if you read the Mahabharata, there's a chance that you might be demonically attacked and that you might actually uh, become, your your spirituality and Christianity might be threatened by reading these other texts. Um, um that that began to hold less appeal to me over time, that living within the confines of fear, um, you know, around exposing myself to other ideas. And I, I eventually arrived at a place that I just wanted to come to all these religious traditions and thoughts and ideas with very open hands and say, let me let me see why these stories and this work have impacted human beings in other parts of the world for thousands of years because there's got to be something to that and when i begin to engage um you know hinduism and buddhism and judaism um and zoroastrianism you know there's there's so many other traditions that Taoism. there's so many other traditions that have um significant things to offer that you you don't have to necessarily say, well, now I'm a Taoist, you know, or now I'm a Buddhist. Yeah. Um, it, it's not about trying to find new labels for yourself as much as, as it is trying to construct and build um, 
a, a new framework for discovering um, the truths of who you are and the truths of this greater mystery, again, that we often label as um, the singularity or God or whatever types of labels you want to give to that. In, in essence, and maybe to people that come from a more religious background, I could encourage you to say, I really, at the end of the day, was desperate for a bigger vision of who God was. I see. Do you think, do you think overcoming the fear in other areas of life, moving, getting divorced, were groundwork laying for you to be able to then look at your religion differently? And did you have to get a little bit healthy first before you were able to look at it critically? Yeah. Yeah. Yes to both questions. I, I feel like it's very difficult to, um, to see clearly when you're needing something to hold on to. Um, and and I don't, I, I think it's very easy for people who have, um, continued in their spiritual journey that maybe, you know, um, beyond it's easy to look at people that held the beliefs and traditions that I held for so long and to shame them to mm-hmm. say, well, you're just stupid for, you know, yeah, you're back that in my rear view mirror. You're behind it's, me. Yeah. And, and boy, I, I find that to be a tremendously unhelpful way to approach these matters. Um, when I am with family members who still embrace a very traditional model of who God is, I have no problem with going to church with them or praying with them or, or, you know, whatever is affirming to the journey that they're on spiritually. I'm not going to shame that. I I'm going to try and join them in wherever they're at, because I didn't arrive where I'm at by anyone shaming me or causing me to feel bad about what I thought or believed. Um, some people may never get there and that's fine. This, this, this journey is self-imposed. This is a journey I've chosen to go on because my curiosity has opened this up and led me here. If someone's curiosity doesn't, if they are satisfied with the picture of spirituality that they hold, I'm, I'm not really here to poke holes in that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in a conversation with people that want a deep, com- a deeper conversation about these things, but I'm really not interested in trying to dismantle, um, what someone else has needed in order to, um, access the transcendent divine. I- I'm just not in the interest, uh, mm-hmm. interested in trying to, I feel like way too many, uh, people are more interested in sort of the emotional, um, punch in the face to other people that they get for telling people how stupid they are. And that says something about that person more than it does someone else's belief. Mm -hmm. Rob, Bell, Pete, Rollins, guys you mentioned, will frequently talk about how bored they get when they're in conversations where it's tit for tat and right for wrong and just how they just don't even want to be there. It, yeah. You just don't even want to be in the conversation because it feels so fruitless. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the, that is the really um, dangerous uh, place that some people need, feel like they need to gravitate to is that need to be right. 
if you can move past that need to be right about things, your life will open up into a much grander adventure. The, the need to be right really confines the journey and the path that you're capable of. Um, it, it, it also, and again, this is one reason that the study of psychology is so important to me, is the study of our own ego and how much we need our egos fed. And, you know, the desire to be right has everything to do with the ego. And every major religious tradition, whether it be Christianity, Buddhism, uh, Islam, it really is about transcending the ego. If you look at the, the base of every one of these religious traditions, it's about getting past the ego and trying to move into a place beyond the ego. And that, that makes some Christians nervous, but honestly, that's what the New Testament is, is almost solely about is the transcendence of the ego. So uh, you know, we can we can embrace that um, or we can fight against that. But the fighting against that is just further grabbing onto the ego. Well, I love what you just said about reframing it a little bit as an adventure, as, as opening you up to new adventures, because I don't think that ever gets expressed and certainly wasn't expressed to me ever, especially when fear is a part of the equation, because you don't think about it as well, this is opening me up to new, exciting adventures. You think about it, uh, to your point about reading other religious texts, you think about it like, oh, shit, I'm going to get demon-possessed. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's that, so much fear there. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's not just religion, too. It feels like that's just not, it doesn't get framed that way ever, where you talk to someone about a different point of view as a, as as an option for opening yourself up to other possibilities. Yeah. And that was part of the reason this podcast began, I think, was just wondering what what where does someone need to be at? What soil does someone need to be in order to be open to a new line of thinking and a new a new question? Do they need to get their ass handed to them for five years and then they're just <laughs> exhausted and broke and now then the putting back together? They're willing to try something new, or is there a magical silver intellectual bullet that will dismantle their <laughs> argument? We all know that's not true. <laughs> but just that idea that I, you you kind of I, what I'm hearing you say is you sort of have realized, well, I'm I'm not here to really critique anyone's journey, and but or along with that, I should say, man, there there is more life to be had out there. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the better story. I think we're all capable of a better story. And if you, I think that's also just an easier bridge for people to cross. Yeah. You know, the, the idea of maybe there's a better story out there waiting for me. Man, that is, that is such an attractive idea. I feel like <laughs> all of us, you know, all of us can say, yeah, I, I could get behind a better narrative in my life. I could get behind a better story. And I think we only get into trouble when we start insisting that elements of your story need to look like the elements in mine. Yeah. That's the problem. You know, if we can, if we can appreciate each other's journeys and narratives without an ego based insistence that your journey has got to mirror mine, then I think we can embrace an adventure together that's about more than just me. 
I mean, the idea of America is yeah. such a beautiful idea. It's such a beautiful concept to say, let's have this melting pot where everybody is welcome and comes in and brings the best of who they are. That is such an amazing idea. I'm waiting for leaders to emerge, you know, who who would suggest to us, let us figure out how all of us can tell a better story together and go on an ad, a new adventure as a country. What what would it look like for us to go on a new adventure as a culture and a country and, and have maybe we make some mistakes, but maybe we find ourselves in this very new uh, land that we had no idea was even possible. Maybe there's a better story for us too. Amazing. Uh, that's a good rap john <laughs> well, I, I again i'm so i continue to be so encouraged to find people that want to have these conversations because that's what keeps me excited about uh continuing the work i do and you know continuing to listen to the work you guys do because it takes all of us to unpack this together you know that's so nice and for uh the million listeners, uh, where can they find you? Two. Two, yes. two million. Two, oh, sorry, two million. They just jumped last night. Two sorry, million. No, two million and one, because my mom will totally listen. So, um, yeah, <laughs> people, can, <laughs> people can find me um, in primarily two places. Uh, one is I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, John, J-O-H-N-K-B-U-C-H-E-R. John K. Butcher without the T. Um, but also you can find all my contacts and connects at my website, which is tellingabetterstory.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this was fun, so. man. I, I hope at some point you guys get out to LA, the both of you, and we can hang out. And you know, yeah. next time I'm in New York, I'd love to grab a beer or something with you guys. Hell yeah. 